0: Throughout this podcast, I will be interviewing people across different fields and learning about the difficult discussions that they have within their careers, along with the tools that they use to manage those conversations. The end goal is to deduct common themes and skills among different individuals that can be applied to the complex conversations one has on a daily basis.
1: If you base your facilitation on trying to listen, and build trust, and respect the value of that person as a person. Um, I
0: think they feel that. My name is Annabelle Walter, and this is Difficult Discussions, a podcast dedicated to finding a method to navigating difficult conversations.
1: I'm Jean Kerwin. I hold a doctorate in medical humanities and bioethics, but that is not where I started. I had Uh, a long evolution of my career, which I think is typical of many people. Uh, Life kind of leads you down the road uh, where you end up that you never even thought you would. So I really started my career with a, I did have a bachelor's degree in public health, but I really started uh, working as a paralegal uh, for many law firms. And, you know, there are... uh, issues ethical issues there but it really wasn't my cup of tea Uh, I was young and then I got married and I had children I stayed home for a while and I was bored so I saw an ad in the paper for they needed volunteers for an ambulance squad and so I joined Uh, and I knew absolutely nothing about how to take care of people. So they, you know, they sent me for a first aid course. I still didn't know what I was doing or why I was doing it. So that led me to volunteer to take the first paramedic training course in New Jersey back in the seventies, because it was a much higher level of uh, learning and paramedicine was very new. Uh, It was basically being the eyes, the ears, and the hands of the ER physician out in the street. And we had a lot of high-tech equipment that wasn't out there before, defibrillators, EKGs. We started IVs, we gave drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And so I loved it. It was very exciting work, and it was very challenging. But that was really my introduction to ethical issues in medicine, because there were many ethical issues in the field, uh, where we really didn't have uh, a lot of guidance what to do. Uh, For example, you know, getting to someone's home with somebody who's really nearing the end of life from illness, and having the family have called 911, but then saying, oh, no, don't do that. We don't want you to do that. (laughs) And we were protocol driven, like they are in the emergency department. It's like a protocol. It's very high speed training what you do. So that was my um, uh, introduction into, I didn't even know what to call it then. It was just challenging um, circumstances. So it happened that the medical director of our program was also the chair of the ethics committee. So he said, oh, you gotta bring these stories to the ethics committee, which I did. And they were shocked to, find out what we had to do out there. So that led me to join the ethics committee and participate with them, and then to go back to school and get my certificate training from Columbia in bioethics. And from there, I pursued my graduate course, Uh, but I was still the director of EMS for a big hospital system. And at the same time, I was working on the ethics committee, doing ethics consultations and started doing them with patients and families at the bedside. So fast forward 25 years, I then, there was no job uh, in ethics per se. It was done by people who had other jobs in the hospital. Uh, But 25 years later, I moved into a job starting palliative care in the hospital and also managing bioethics and training other people to be ethics consultants at the bedside. And so I recently retired from full-time and I now am a consultant for several hospitals and organizations um, in New Jersey and other states, uh, helping them develop ethics, uh, the capacity and the resources to provide ethics consultations. So that, that's it in a nutshell. There's <laughs> a lot of stuff in between.
0: <laughs> and what type of, you know, as a consultant, what type of dis- difficult discussions do you have with hospitals or physicians or patients?
1: Oh, gosh. Lots of different uh, scenarios. Uh, I always say, uh, doing. I've been doing... Probably bedside consultations with people for over 35 years. And just, I've never heard it all. <laughs> There's always something new. Uh, but everything from conflicts uh, among family members about who makes decisions or what those decisions are. Um, you know, so really conflict resolution among families and providers uh, differing beliefs and opinions about what's the right thing to do. Um, a lot of difficult conversations about, uh, foregoing life-sustaining, artificial life-sustaining treatment at the end of life, foregoing ventilators, stopping dialysis, um, you know, uh, disconnecting artificial, uh, technology such as LVADS, which is a left ventricular assist device that's put in when the heart doesn't work anymore. Um, And and so there's a lot of conflict around those decisions uh, because uh, people still feel that the removal, if they make the decision to disconnect the ventilator from their 92-year-old mother, they feel that they're killing their mother, even though they're not. And the disease underlying her condition is what's causing her natural death without the artificial. But that's, it's really hard to parse out that conversation with people because they're dealing with the emotional trauma and bereavement of losing somebody. And they don't wanna be making decisions that might be a mistake. So it, it's really difficult. Um, worked with an anorexic patient recently from California, had a severe eating disorder. And she uh, asked her physician for a prescription for medical aid in dying, which is legal in about 10 states. New Jersey is one of them. California is one of them. Uh, So the question really was, uh, you know, in order to ask for medical aid in dying, the criteria by all those laws is that you have to have decision-making capacity and you have to have a terminal irreversible illness. Well, the question really was, is an eating disorder a terminal irreversible illness? Certainly if she ate, she wouldn't die. Uh, So, and those would argue, but but she has a psychiatric illness, an eating disorder that is terminal. Well, then if it's a psychiatric disorder, does she have decision-making capacity to make that? So it was really difficult going back and forth between the patient who really wanted access and the physician who was very uncomfortable in prescribing for her. So that, that's just another more recent type of conflict that comes up. So every new technology, every new law, every new twist in medicine causes uh, decisions that are ethically difficult.
0: Yeah. And, And going back to that example of the woman with the eating disorder, how do you facilitate a conversation with all those various stakeholders, the physician, the family, the individual themselves, how do you navigate that space and the different goals and potential biases amongst all those various stakeholders?
1: Well, it's a really good question. Uh, how do you facilitate all those different diverse opinions about what's the best thing to do for a very ill anorexic patient? And I think the first thing is what, what we do in ethics uh, and I guess in many other professions is gather information because you really need to know all of the information, the factual information and as much knowledge as you can pull in from other people. So we really needed in that case to talk to the eating disorder experts, not, not, not her, but the eating disorder, the physicians who treat them to find out uh their opinion about prognosis, their opinion about whether she's irreversible or whether she has capacity. We needed to talk to the psychiatrist who um, evaluated her decision-making capacity. We talked to the palliative care physician and, and it's always a judgment call. Um, In some cases, when we have a, a decision to make among many participants, we bring everybody in the room and let everybody hear everything. In other situations, we pull pieces of information for our own sake and then pull the stakeholders together. So every situation is unique and you really have to weigh and balance. Do you really want everybody in the room or do you wanna have separate meetings first and then perhaps bring everybody together? So always looking for who are the stakeholders, you know, so you may be dealing with that anorexic patient, but what about her family? You know, how, how are they impacted and where do they come in? You can't leave them out of it. So identifying all the stakeholders, getting all the information, and then filtering all that factual information, and then listening to everybody's story, the narrative that comes behind, which is the one that's filled with emotion uh, and not necessarily facts uh, and listening to all that so that you really have a good sense. and, and, And most, I don't know if it's most important, but when you're pulling that all together, you really have to pay attention to your own bias. Because everybody has their own bias. And try to uh, make sure that you're not entering into that uh, arena with your bias. Yeah, so that's just sort of a general sketch of what it's like.
0: Yeah, so just keeping an open mind and putting you know, your opinions aside and really listening to each individual stakeholder in their right, right, eyes. Right. Um, And that's sort of leads into my next question. Uh, How does your identity shape the way that, you know, you go about having difficult discussions and the biases that you may have within those conversations?
1: Yeah. Well, actually I try very hard to, uh, just my identity is a member of the human race that has issues of my own traumas of my own in my life. And I try very hard not to come in as, uh, because people, are, families in particular, are always afraid somebody's going to come in with a higher power, you know, uh, whether it's a doctor in a white coat. I never wear a white coat in the hospital uh, just because it's a visual symbol of power. And that imbalance of power uh, is damaging right from the get go, because once, once, People perceive that, then they're not going to be open and they're n- not going to build the trust that you need. So I always go in as myself, uh, as just another person. Um, and I often start uh, the meeting with some everyday, non essential conversation. How was the traffic getting here? I'm, you know, it must have been difficult getting out of work for you and your mom, uh, whatever the situation is, to level the playing field so that they know I'm not um, there to judge them. uh, And just uh, subtle things can build trust. And I always like to start the conversation, and many who work in my field do, by if it's if it's about a decision say for their mother who's on a ventilator I always like to start the conversation by saying tell me a little bit about your mom and let them just tell me whatever they want to tell me um sometimes they start from when she was a young child and then I know I'm in for a half hour discussion but it builds trust because no you know a lot of times uh Physicians and others will come in and they're in a hurry and they're going to get right to the diagnosis and the prognosis and what medications and what the situation is without uh, allowing the people who are in the room to talk about the person as as a person before she was sick, you know, um, just to get a profile and it builds trust and it's an amazing tool um, to help.
0: Yeah. So like showing your humanity and trying to, you know, create some sort of commonality between you so that Mm -hmm. you can build that relationship on trust. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. I think the best way to keep it productive is to introduce the ground rules as we're here to make sure that everybody has the same information because that's important because different people get, different translations of information. So we're gonna make sure everybody has the same factual information. We're gonna make sure that everybody has a chance to speak about how they feel about this and what their perception is of what's the right thing to do and why. And then after we all have, and I, I usually say, uh, and we're, you know, please don't interrupt each other. Let's everybody listen, even if you disagree. Uh, every, everybody's going to get a chance to say what they feel and what they think, and then we'll put it all together and see if we can reach a consensus about what is the best thing to do for your mom. And that usually works, but, I, I, the caveat is sometimes you have, uh, a rude, disruptive part- participant in the meeting and, they can absolutely disrupt uh, any flow of consensus or agreement or just a civil conversation. If you have somebody like that, I would I have stopped the meeting to say, you know, this is not productive. So everybody needs to take a break and come back maybe tomorrow morning and understand that we really need to follow the ground rules. And if we can't be civil and polite to each other, then the person who's not behaving well, uh, maybe should not come to the meeting. You know, I mean, because they they can get really out of control. (laughs) We, you know, I've not often, but I have had to call security for people. You know, people are frustrated. Because the thing is, you don't know what the dynamic is in that family. You're meeting them for the first time. You walk in a room, you might have six siblings sitting there. You have no idea the history behind their relationship with each other. And sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a blockbuster. And, and then you have to really do a little bit of uh, crisis intervention.
0: Yeah. So if a conversation stops being productive, there's an element of like, you know, because we're not getting anywhere, it's best if we either take a take a break and step back or, you know, unfortunately, that individual can't be a part of that conversation anymore.
1: Right. If they can't control their emotions and allow other people to speak, then it, it's never going to be productive because then everybody loses it. Often. We have um, more than one person orchestrating these conversations, facilitating them, um, you know, cause I worked on the palliative care team, but also as an ethics consultant, And often I would have the chaplain with me or a social worker with me. And there's a great technique of if I get in the abyss with somebody that I'm talking to, because, you know, nobody's perfect. And sometimes you say something that just irritates somebody else. And so we kind of trade off and rescue each other uh, by coming, you know, coming in at the conversation when you can see your partner is, is really having a tough time with one individual. Uh, it's sort of a distraction. Um, so sometimes that works. Uh, you usually know when you've lost it you know, when, when you cannot retrieve the conversation, if it's, if it, because you immediately get very uncomfortable. And when you reach that level, then you're not at your best, uh, facility ability at all. So it's best to just either take a break. We'll all get some water. Let's settle down and remember the ground rules, something like that. But occasionally, you know, you have to really, um, make sure of the safety of everybody in the room, because there are people who get out of control over these situations and it's not usual, but when it happens, then you have to think about the safety of everybody in the
0: room, including yourself. And, and what values guide your discussions with others? What do you, what's at the forefront of your mind when you're in that room?
1: Well, I think the most uh, important value is respect. And, and that means, you know, respect for differing opinions, uh, differing beliefs. It's even respect for people who believe things that you know are not factual, uh, but it's what they believe. And if you, if you base your facilitation on trying to listen and build trust, and respect the value of that person as a person, wherever they may lie in their decision making. Um, I think they feel that. And, uh, you know, also the value of um, keeping the integrity of everybody whole during the meeting. Sometimes you can see the value of trying to keep the playing field level. And some family member might be very controlling in the boss and somebody else you can see sitting over in the corner, not saying anything, but uh, has a lot to say. So, you know, pulling that person forward and, and saying, I haven't heard from you. Let's hear from Daniel. He hasn't said anything. So individual um integrity and respect for each person in the room. In, in my long career, there's no school or class or book that is going to really prepare you to be expert at this. If there is such a thing as expert, having to facilitate different difficult conversations uh, comes with experience. But with that experience, I think that you uh, develop techniques and, you know, my colleagues and I develop our own techniques, but we share them. I see somebody else do something that really worked and I'm like, oh, I'm going to remember that. So, for instance, uh, one of the big conversations that I had with people was about resuscitation. And I, as a paramedic, know everything about resuscitation and i know how unsuccessful it is in people who have a terminal illness it does not change the course of that illness but you can prolong the dying process by restarting the heart you know so i know it organically but i know that other people don't and so the if they're arguing no I want CPR done on my 97 year old mother, even though she has end stage Alzheimer's instead of saying, which I could say that that CPR is not going to work on your mother. It's like, you know, I could give her all the bad stuff. And I've heard people say, Oh, it's going to break her bones. It's going to do this and that, and it's of no benefit. That's just going to make her dig in her heels because that I'm just setting up the argument. So instead I just flip it around to a question and say, tell me, how would you, how do you describe resuscitation? What do you think it is and how does it work? And a lot of times they'll tell me, oh, it's a treatment to keep somebody alive. And then I have to correct them that we don't even do it until somebody is actually dead. Little tricks like that, but mostly reframing it for them by asking them to tell me what, how they would describe that, or how they, you know, if it's another topic, how, what, what do they want to tell me about that? And that sets them on the same playing field as me. If I just barrage them with the facts to tell them they're wrong, even if they are, it's not going to help. It just, it just makes them dig in more.
0: Yeah. Striving to understand their opinion, um, to ensure you steer away from an argument and putting them in like fight or flight mode. Yeah. And, and using, uh,
1: statistics, I, I never do that because that doesn't mean anything. If I say 99% of people who get CPR do not survive long-term over a certain age well that leaves one percent and you know what to me that's 50 50 you're either in the 99 or you're in the one percent so it's a 50 50 whether you're going to be in one percent or the other and and that's the way people think it's like okay so data and data, and uh, I've heard people try to use studies while well, there was a study on liver cancer that people do not relate to that. You know, they're talking about their loved one or themselves, and they're trying to make a decision based a lot on emotions.
0: Yeah. Focusing on compassion and understanding and not necessarily, you know, right. the, the facts and the statistics and all that. Yeah. What do you think are the most important things for an individual to keep in mind when facilitating a conversation or on the receiving end of a conversation? Uh
1: well, active listening is probably the most important and silence, which is difficult for all of us to maintain. Uh, You know, allowing space for people to air their feelings or their perceptions. uh, You know, it's sometimes really hard not to respond right away. But if somebody says something egregiously wrong, in your opinion, sometimes just being silent for a while, letting it sink in before you respond and maybe ask a question to tell me more about that. You know, uh, how did you come to uh, understand it that way? Um, You know, I think there's lots of techniques. Also, many times in difficult conversations, we're talking about somebody else's life and not their own. And that's what makes the difficult decision because nobody wants to be the one to make those decisions. So we, we often try to put the person back in the center of the room, even if they're not there, they're, they might be in a coma. Uh, but we would say if, if your father could hear everything that the doctors have said about his prognosis and what the future might be for him and how it would look if he got this treatment or how it would look if he didn't what would he say? And when you say that, what would he say? They very often will pipe up with his voice and say, oh, well, he'd say, get me out of here now, (laughs) you know, or something that is very unique to him, his sense of humor, his uh, dislike of hospitals, his love of hospitals, whatever it is, uh, it, it brings him back because people get so set on arguments that they forget who they're talking about or what they're talking about. It's just for the sake of the argument. So bringing the focus of the person back into the room is helpful.
0: And you were talking about active listening. What do you think um, distinguishes you know, active listening from just how one would interact on a daily basis? It takes
1: practice. And if you've ever had an argument with a family member or a spouse or a boyfriend, uh, when they're arguing, when they're speaking, even if you're polite enough to let them speak, you're thinking about your retort. You're thinking about what you're going to come back with. And you're looking for all the flaws in what they're telling you. And you've got it. You, you're like, okay, I know how to nail this. And that is not active listening. That is offensive uh, behavior. So active listening takes practice. And it is actually listening to what they are saying. And it's it's really hard for me to describe it because you have to actually try to do it. Like imagine somebody is telling you a story that makes no sense that, you know, I had a friend who believed in um, chemtrails, you know, the, the white things that the airplanes shoot out behind them. You see the white streaks across the sky. He was, he was telling me, oh, those, the, those uh, they're put up there by the government and they cause infertility. And, and I so, so I'm listening to his whole dissertation on this and I'm, I'm thinking, no, I can punch holes in this all the way. But if I really want to engage him when he's all done, I say, gee, Tom, that's really interesting. So what do you suppose the motivation is for the government to do that? You know, why do they want to decrease the population? You know, so instead of saying, you're crazy, <laughs> you know, I happen to know that that airplane is, you know, whatever. Um, instead, just pausing, uh, letting him have his day in the sunshine and and then just asking him to tell you more about how he came to that. You know, uh, has he seen studies on that? You, you know, acting like you're really interested, but your questions are helping him have to tell you more. And sometimes it works, not always, but at least you keep the respect and his integrity and you don't blow up the trust between you. Current topics on everything from politics to uh, COVID-19 to vaccines has created such Antagonistic uh, divisiveness among people because they don't, they do exactly everything we're saying here not to do uh, to help have those conversations be productive. Even if you don't reach a consensus, being productive is just respecting each other and listening because if you shut down, and you're ready to blast their argument with all your information, then they're gonna do the same thing and you're just gonna get a bigger argument. But if you allow them space by just saying, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know that vaccines caused infertility. What, where, where did you get that information? Oh, who is she? You know, like, Just respecting what they're telling you, not that you have to believe it, but respecting it as that they're not crazy and just asking them more about it. And as you just said before, that sometimes leads to their own journey to say, gosh, where did I get that information? Or maybe it's not true, you know, or, you know, doing their own research instead of you bringing out your machine gun to tell them, Here's the here's the bottom line, because then you're not going to win any arguments. Even if they know they're wrong, you're still not going to win. So everyday conversations does doesn't matter if you're talking about the best place to buy cheese. Uh, if you disagree,
0: do you apply these skills and these tools to your everyday life? Um, from you know your experience with patients and. Yes. Are you stakeholders?
1: Yes. Uh, First of all, I'm married. And so I apply it on a daily basis. (laughs) I try with my spouse. And if he's telling me something that I think is lunacy that he wants to do, I try very hard to listen to him and say, why do you want to do that? And then I try very hard to say, hmm. So, what do you think is going to happen when you do do that? <laughs> you know. So, I do use some of the same skills. I'm probably not as um, obedient to my techniques uh, with my own family, but a good, for instance, is we we have five children and they're all out on their own. I cannot tell you how many phone calls I get about uh, difficult decisions that they're trying to make. So, my son several years ago, his beloved cat that he had since college uh, got cancer and he took it to the vet and the vet said, I think the cat was 18 and the, the vet said, well, there's two things you could do. We could send him to University of Pennsylvania for chemotherapy, uh, you know, because he lives in Western New Jersey, so he could get to Philly to to take the cat there. Um, you know, we'd have to have chemotherapy a couple of times a week. Uh, he said, or you know, we could just make him comfortable. And and my son was just he's he knows all this stuff intellectually, but he was so emotionally wrought that Percy was not going to live. He's like, I'm thinking maybe we should try this chemo. And this is a this is a phone conversation. So I said, and he still uh, tells me this story back to me. I said, well, gee, does Percy like to ride in the car? And he said, oh, no, he hates it. I said, oh, that might be tough, you know, three times a week if he doesn't like the car. And (laughs) then I said, well, do you think the chemo is going to make him feel sick or is he gonna understand, do you think, what, why he's having it? He's like, no. I. So after enough of these very bland questions about Percy and what he might like, my son said, okay, Ma, I get it. We're gonna just keep him comfortable. <laughs> But, but, you know, he got it himself. He said, of course, we're not going to drag him to UPenn three times a week for chemo. (laughs) So that's a technique, right? I'm not telling him, what are you crazy doing chemo on a cat at 18, you know? So that's just one example. (laughs) So I think you can use the same techniques that we use in difficult medical ethical conversations with All kinds of decision making, difficult decisions. You know, do I break up with this person uh, that I'm engaged to because I found out, blah, blah, blah? You know, I mean, all all, life is full of emotional, difficult decisions to make. And you need the other thing I should say is if you're going to be facilitating difficult decisions among people depending on what environment you're in, you really also have to have the knowledge about what that environment's laws, policies and regulations are, because you can't, there are some things that are ethical, but they might, they might not be legal, you know? And there are some things that are legal that might not be ethical. So if you're trying to parse out what's the right thing to do, you really have to know the hard stops you know, if somebody comes to me in Pennsylvania uh, and says, "I want medical aid in dying, I want a prescription," it's easy. I can just tell them, "Well, you can't get it in Pennsylvania; it's not legal." You know that that that's a a hard stop. Uh, but you do have to know what what your environment regulations are.
0: Yeah, legality and ethicality don't necessarily intersect. Yeah. No, people say, well, it's legal.
1: I say, well, yes, slavery was legal for a long time until somebody had the courage, many people had the courage and lost their lives to say, no, it's morally wrong. And so eventually the laws changed to meet the what we think as a society is morally right. Uh, but it's, they don't always match. I mean, look how many people don't believe in that uh, abortion is morally right. And yet it's been legal. So that, I mean, I don't think that's ever going to be settled. That's two different moral opinions about that. What do you tell
0: yourself before you walk into that room?
1: I tell myself to breathe. And in order to prepare to walk into when you know there's going to be a conflict, and often we know that's why we get called. But if we know it's pretty egregious, I try to just take a minute outside before I walk in and calm my own energy in my brain that's going on about, well, if the because I usually know something about what the conflict is. I try to erase all of that and just walk in with a clean slate in my brain so that I'm open to listen because I, I can tell you that oftentimes people will say there's a big argument down the hall uh, in this room, whether it's in a hospital, a medical argument or any place else, you're already biased because whoever tells you about the conflict has already picked a side and the the way they tell it. So I try to walk in with a clean slate with no particular bias um, and put my own personal biases in the back somewhere. And to remember when you walk in the door that these are fellow human beings and they're going through the worst time of their life. Whatever the difficult discussion is, they are not having a good day and it's traumatizing to them. And so any way you can help them, because when people are upset, or frustrated or angry, they can act obnoxious, but they're still people in distress. And that's why they're acting that way. So to try to remember that this is the worst day for them, not for you. And so you give them a lot of slack.
0: Yeah. Being compassionate and Mm ensuring you're ready to listen and going in with an open mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, people,
1: often said to me when they knew what I did for a living all day long. I mean, I never get any calls of good conversations. So (laughs) that's why they call, right? And they said, well, how can you listen to this all day long? Don't you get depressed? And I said, no, because what it really does when you, there, there is not one of us that goes through life without difficult decisions without traumatic decisions, without grief, trauma, loss, you name it, it's going to happen. It's part of life. And if you realize you're in the same boat as everybody else, it's just their day to have that traumatic decision to make, then you can actually feel more compassionate and and really want to help them navigate the road ahead of them because it's not going to be easy. And if you can just make it a little easier for them, it's so worth it. And I still have patients today or families of patients who keep in touch with me because they remember who helped them navigate the worst day of their life. So, it, the, re, the rewards are much greater than, and it never made me depressed. It made me just recognize more acutely that we are all in this humanity together. And you just have to help each other out. There, there's no perfect, nobody's an expert at having these conversations, uh, but you can develop skills and you can uh, arm yourself with information about how to do it better. It's it, but it really takes practice and, and people can practice good communications in their everyday life. You know, like in the, in the grocery store, I always thank the checkout clerk who looks stressed and, you know, it's the end of her shift or whatever. They're short staffed. Everybody's short staffed, right? So just remembering to say, you know what, I really appreciate you. I really do, because you're as important as anybody else on the food chain here. And people, I always did the same thing in the hospital about the the cleaning people who would clean the bathrooms, because nobody even talks to them. And I would always bring whatever was left over from conference lunches uh, to them. And I would say, don't ever think that you aren't the most important people on this floor, because you are. <laughs> but, you know, things like that make a difference to, to people who are often treated as, as if they're lesser important.